we are uh, here again, and uh, we just want to uh, learn more about you this day, Lord. We want to go through Galatians, and we want uh, to listen uh, to Paul as he spoke your words, Lord, and that we would take them uh, to heart, and uh, that the truth would be so refreshing to us, Lord, and uh, give us confidence and comfort and hope, Lord, as your words do. And we just pray that uh, this lesson is always and only about you, Lord, and we want to lift you up in the process of going through your word in Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, great. We are in the third chapter of Galatians, and I th thought it would be good to do just a little intro slash review to take us up to this point because we stopped in, a in the middle of a couple of verses last time. Um, and so I kind of want to, you know, reset the stage. But if you remember from the very first introductory lesson that we had on this book, we talked about these two covenants that, are, that were presented. And uh, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. We read of the Old Covenant in uh, Exodus 24. And we, we, we saw how Moses uh, presented... Uh, the covenant to the people, and they desired they desired to be uh, signers of that covenant, to to be held under that covenant. And then, we, I took us later to a, a verse, a couple of verses in Jeremiah, where where the Lord was speaking through the prophet and telling about a new covenant that was going to occur. So we were introduced uh, to old and new covenants, and I'll I'll just tell you that as we go through this, there's loosely interchangeable ideas. When I, when I speak of covenant and promise and contract, uh, agreement and will and testament even. And we can use those kind of loosely because the word does. But as we were going through these things, you know, we looked at old covenant, new covenant, and then we got into some uh, pretty enlightening uh, words from Paul as we got into the third chapter. And it was telling us something about the old and new covenant, and that is that sequence uh, is not the same thing as pre-existence. And so Paul is reasoning uh, to the Galatians about their salvation and, and the need not to have to keep the law any longer. And of course they were being uh, uh, oppressed by these Judaizers who were telling just the opposite. But he appeals to an argument. Uh, he's going to appeal to several arguments as we go forward. And the one that he uh, starts with is... Uh, the reasoning according to Abraham. And so we, we saw some things in Abraham. In, in uh, Genesis 15, we saw where Abraham was actually given this promise from the Lord God. And it was regarding his heir. It wasn't going to be somebody that just happened to be a servant. It was going to be a biological heir with his genes. And uh, we also saw that this promise to Abraham was going to come through his seed, singular, and that it was going to be available for everyone. All, everyone could be blessed through Abraham as children of Abraham. And that that was going to bring with it an airship. H-E-I-R. Airship. Not an A-I-R. And so uh, we're going to look at that as we go forward. Um, so I just wanted to get that out of the way. Now, we had stopped in this verse of Galatians uh, 15 through 17, and we had been through quite a bit of it, but I just wanted to sort of finish up 
uh, with my notes on it. So let me just read the verse again, and then we will go. And feel free to interrupt me at any point in time. Galatians three fifteen to 17. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant. Now think contract here. Yet, when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. What I'm saying is this, the law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. And so we see that it was 430 years after God's promise to Abraham and his seed that Moses comes on the scene. And the Lord chose Moses to lead this emerging nation of Israel out of captivity in Egypt. Recall that at the giving of the law at the base of Mount Sinai, the Jews had heard God's voice and he was thundering out the Ten Commandments and it was frightening. So frightening that they told uh, Moses that they didn't want to hear directly from God. They wanted to hear through Moses. They picked Moses as their mediator. You know, but whether they heard it from God or whether they heard it from Moses, the truth of the matter is that keeping the law could not legally be the basis of righteousness. No matter all the other things, legally it couldn't be. And the reason was that God's promise to Abraham, that is his contract with Abraham, was already in force. And it had been for over 400 years. Now, at this late date, when the law was given, it couldn't add to or change the contract that was originally ratified. And just because God now gave the Jewish people a law that described righteousness, this could never alter his contract that imputed righteousness by faith. This is what Paul is trying to say in these verses. And that promise that the Lord made to Abraham had all, was already established. It was unchangeable. And it set forth some important things for us to know. Number one, it set forth the fact that righteousness is by faith. And number two, our inheritance from God is obtained by believing God based on that promise to Abraham. Believing God then makes us eligible to be heirs. That is because we are Abraham's descendants, his children. And even the most rigorous efforts to keep the law can't change those two things. Okay, any comments before I go on? Galatians, Galatians 3.18 For if the inheritance is based on a law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. So we know that the righteousness that God requires can only come by faith in that promise. And that same righteousness is what is required in order to qualify us for inheritance. The law supplies neither righteousness nor the means to gain an inheritance. So this leaves us with a legitimate question here. The purpose of the law. Why give it? Well, we'll go on to uh, verses 19 and 20 and we'll see this addressed. Galatians 3, 19 and 20. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator. 
until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. You know, so if the law wasn't given as a means of gaining righteousness and keeping it does not constitute righteousness, then what purpose would it serve? Verse 19 here clearly tells us that it was added. And this was because of transgressions, sins. Uh, and why? To identify and maybe even restrain the sins. But we already know that additions uh, cannot alter a previous, uh, a, an existing agreement. And this one was 430 years previous. However, this addition could serve another purpose, right? And that's what we want to see. So let's consider this. The Israelites, like, the Israelites, like all people, were transgressing against God, but they were God's people through Abraham, through Isaac, and through Jacob, and they were failing to reflect God's righteousness and His character to the other nations. This is part of the reason they were a chosen people. Instead, Israel, they were reflecting the customs and the gods of the people among whom they dwelt. At this point, it was Egypt. And the law of God that was given to them was to be foundational for at least two purposes. First, Israel was supposed to have a distinct quality, something that would distinguish them from the other nations so that those nations might even be drawn to God, to come to God. That's point number one or purpose number one. Number two, and this is very important, the law was to cause the Jewish people to understand their sin and very importantly, to understand their need. Think about the law. It was a never-ending procession of sacrifices and atonement. But it was to point them to the promised seed of Abraham, Jesus the Messiah. And he was the only perfect and acceptable sacrifice. I've said it before, the law was meant to be a temporary institution to be fulfilled when Christ would come. And because the law could not make a person righteous, its intent then was exactly the opposite. And Paul lets us know this in, in the uh, third chapter of Romans. He gives some explanation and some purpose of the law. Excuse me. Verses 19 through 22 of Romans 3. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world, that means Jew and Gentile, may become accountable to God because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And this, you know, this is the message that Paul was spreading throughout the, the world there, wherever he went. And when you think about it, who should know better than Paul? You know, God picked a very specific Jew when He picked Paul. Uh, from his birth, he'd been on a track to become an extremely religious a Jew, a Pharisee, in fact. And Paul's purpose was to keep the law perfectly. And he may have even fooled himself into thinking that he did so from time to time. But I'll tell you, when he met the Lord on the road to Damascus, he realized something, that despite his diligence and his best efforts, he was not justified in his conversion. Paul's justification had come through Jesus Christ without the law. And Paul did understand that. 
Now regarding uh, the verse with a mediator in it, we need to consider this. The law came to the people, the Jewish people, through a mediator, Moses. Remember, he took that word and he passed it on to the people. They were too afraid to listen to the Lord. However, they did promise to do all that the Lord had said. And so the law became a contract between two parties. And the Lord and the Israelites, with Moses as a mediator, this was that contract. Two parties requires a mediator. One party doesn't. Now, this contract was conditional and two-sided, as I said, and it was based on both sides keeping their end of the agreement. And obviously, God's not going to break His part, but the weakness of the old covenant, our contract, was on the side of the people. They couldn't keep their promise. And almost immediately, they violated the contract. You know, it's interesting to hear the Lord speaking through Moses uh, to the people when he hears their promise uh, initially to, to keep the old covenant. Uh, that is in uh, Deuteronomy 5, uh, verses 28 through 33. It says, The Lord heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me, and the Lord said to me, I've heard the voice of the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They have done well in all that, in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it may be well with them and with their sons forever. Go and say to them, return to your tents. But as for you, stand here by me, that I may speak to you all the commandments and the statutes and the judgments, which you shall teach them, that they may observe them in the land which I give them to possess. So you shall observe to do just as the Lord your God has commanded you, you shall not turn aside to the right or to the left. You shall walk in all the way which the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may be well with you, and that you may prolong your days in the land which you will possess. You know, the Lord, He accepted their commitment. But notice the lament that He gives. Oh, that they had such a heart in them, like if only they had such a heart in them, to keep all His commandments. And we see from the beginning of this covenant with the people that they have a problem, and it is a heart problem. In fact, they need a completely new heart. This, the old covenant does not supply that. And in the giving of the law, the mediator was necessary because this was a two-sided covenant. Only the fact is that the Israelites and really all people are unable to hold at their end. I don't know if that's genetically or spiritually or what, but we just cannot do it. And also please notice that the, the potential benefit of that covenant as God spoke, the keeping of the old covenant, it was not God's promise of eternal life, was it? You didn't see that in there. In there. It was only a promise of well-being in the land. Never does the keeping of the law promise to produce eternal salvation. But we shouldn't despair because the pre-existing Adamic covenant, not Adamic, Abrahamic covenant is a one-sided, unconditional covenant of which God is the administrator and mediator and all of it. And he keeps his promises. Listen to uh, the new covenant spoken of by Ezekiel, another Old Testament uh, prophet, where he says, this is the Lord speaking to the Jews. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, 
and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Okay, a one-sided unconditional covenant is the new one, which actually preceded the old one. Any comments, thoughts? Yes, Lugie. Yeah, just seeing that, like this, this, this picture of the, the condemnation because of where we are, that comes from the law, and how much that drives us to the Lord, but at the same time, how much it elevates Jesus, right? That you have countless centuries of thousands and millions of people unable to fulfill this, and then you have Jesus who does, and that, that personal experience of, of flaw and weakness, and then to hear of one person who is able to keep it, and just the, yeah, just the, the way that he is, he is elevated. The only one yeah. who could, who can qualify. It is extraordinary. It is. And I, and I love that section that you read from, from Romans, where it talks about the, the law, or the righteousness of God has been manifested and is witnessed by the law and the prophets. That's right. That his, his life is not just him saying, yeah, I did it, but it's this entire history and this record of saying, yeah, he did. He did, and the prophets and, and uh, the law did foretell of it. In the Old Testament was pointing us to it as well, all of it. Okay, so we'll move on to these next verses, and they're going to examine then if this law is some sort of a contradiction then to the original promise that God had made. Uh, and this is in uh, Galatians 3, verses 21 and 22, which states, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture, that is, that contains the law, has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. No, the law is not against the promise of God. Clearly, that's what he's saying. However, the law could not give life because it couldn't change the human heart. If there was a law that could do that, it would be able to produce righteousness. What the law could do, however, was to make people aware, as Luggie is saying, of how far we are from the righteousness of God. The law makes us aware of our guilt and it points us to God for mercy. And in that way, it's preparing the way for the gospel to come, and that's what it was supposed to do. But the sad truth of a law is that once it is broken, it cannot be unbroken. Where it says here in, in these verses of Galatians, to be shut up is the end of a matter. It's a conclusion, God's conclusion. And this is what Scripture affirms, that, that by the law standards, everyone is shut up under sin. That is, all have been found guilty. You know, this, was, this is the culmination of uh, Paul's argument in Romans in the first three chapters where he says in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, we must have a Savior. We have to have a Savior. And He has to be one who can do a spiritual heart transplant on us. Uh, but this is what God promised through Abraham, even before the law. You know, this is what he, it means in Galatians 3.8 where it says that God himself preached the gospel to Abraham. Any other thoughts? 
Tom. Well, you pointed out something that I not really thought of, and that is that they were, the people were taught then, these before Mormons, by the religions of the land. And so they were just doing whatever they knew and whatever came into their flesh to do. And um, so uh, the giving of the law was to separate them, yes. as you pointed out. That's right. And, um, and educate them into what holiness Absolutely. looks like. Absolutely. And the second thing that I, I wondered uh, is, is it not similar to um, when Jesus was asked by the so-called keepers of the law, the Pharisees, uh, what about divorce? You know, is it... Um, he went back to the beginning. He said, Moses gave that to you for your uh, hardness of heart? Yes. Um, but in the beginning, it was not so. so. This new covenant, to me, seem, seems as though it's um, similar to what it... similar to marriage in the beginning. Very good. You know, it's Yes. That's only the beginning of what God expects and wants of us to live like. So, right. love, for example, covers a multitude, multitude of, of sins. Laws. Absolutely. You know, Paul is going to use that very argument, uh, that very example that you're using of marriage uh, when we get further in the chapter or in the, in the book, too. So, that's. Uh, you know, and everything was done legally, and we couldn't um, have another covenant until it, this one was fulfilled, where we could it would be open to all. Uh, there was justifying faith prior to the law, and that's always been available. But the but the opening to all the nations, as per the promise, was had to. It says the promise was to Abraham through his seed. So we were waiting for Christ to come here. But we sh they should have been not just waiting, but looking for him. There are some extremely uh, good details that were given about him coming, and a lot, so much of it was missed. Okay. Galatians, uh, let's go to verses 23 and 24. Uh, but before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to, that is, until the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Now here, Paul is continuing to expound on the purpose of God in giving the law. And in these verses, he's used a couple of figures of speech for us. Uh, number one, he uses a prison or think of a holding cell. You know, the terms used in here, kept in custody, uh, shut up uh, until the faith is one. Is one. And the second is a uh, child-to-custodian relationship that we're going to look at. But first, let's look at this phrase, uh, but before faith came. Now, this means prior to the revelation of Jesus Christ as the Messiah in His first coming. 
And the faith here means something specific, the specific faith in him, in Christ, to receive his gift of grace. As I just was saying, the just, justifying faith was already operative in the Old Testament, but the specific faith, that is, in the person and work of Jesus, well, it couldn't come until he was actually revealed, until he was here on earth. But before specific faith in Jesus, Israel was shut up or figuratively under protective custody, like a prison under the law. And this wasn't necessarily a bad thing, as you said, Tom, because by doing so, God was shielding His chosen people from the evil pagan rituals and just the influence of of the heathens uh, that the surrounding nations were promoting. Um, Next, in verse 24 of Galatians here, we see the uh, uh, term that the law was like a tutor to Israel. Tutor or schoolmaster. Uh, Well, really, those are probably not the very best interpretations of the Greek word, uh, which is paedagogos, from which we get the English word pedagogue. And rather than a a, a schoolmaster, rather than a sweet old country schoolmarm then, we're, we're speaking more of a more of a strict kind of a prim and proper governess. And uh, the idea of, uh, of this word is that uh, there is the one who is imparting knowledge, but it's associated with strict discipline. So this is the, the sort of a school teacher we're talking about. You may have had such a person uh, growing up. Understand this though, uh, in the Roman culture of the day, slaves were selected to take their master's male children usually, and usually from the ages of 6 to 13. But they would take them into custody. And these slaves were charged with guarding the children uh, from the evils of society. And they were to provide discipline, severe discipline, sometimes even harsh. And they were to give them moral training also. This is a picture that parallels the function of the law until Christ would come. And when he would come, then the people could be justified or declared righteous by faith in him. And I just want to be clear that the law is, is, doesn't gently lead a person to Christ. That's not its intent. Rather, it demonstrates the futility and the hopelessness of trying and failing to keep it. It is our resulting need for someone to save us that points us to Christ. That is what it's to teach. Any comments? It's interesting you say that. Every time I thought about this verse, I never thought about a tutor as being gentle at all. Mm-hmm. I, I just figured a tutor is, hey, this is it. So anyway, anyway. I got it, and you're right. Lugie. Yeah, that, that, that tutoring picture, I think, for, for some of his audience, that would be a really, really unwelcome yeah. metaphor because so much of the, the Hebrew idea is this achievement and attainment and actually becoming a master of the law and becoming righteous where so many other people aren't. And Paul is putting it in the proper context of saying, like, no, you are not actually this respectable adult. You are a child. It doesn't matter how old you are or what you say you've accomplished. This is the function of the law, and you are not understanding it, which, again, like this idea of being a scribe and a Pharisee and a master Mm -hmm. of what the law says to be basically reproached by it by saying, like, no, the law is your tutor. That's a hard upbringing. It, the law is inflexible, and it's unforgiving, and it's, you know, it doesn't let up on you. It doesn't allow for your mistakes. 
it, it, it identifies those and condemns you for them. But very much to say, like, you do not have the maturity that you claim. Right. You are like everyone else. Like, you are in, in need in this way. That's right. Paul is going to continue in that line, too, as we go forward. Uh, okay, verses 25 and 26, chapter 3. But now faith has come. We are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So these two verses are pointing up that there's a difference between being children of Israel and children of God. There's a difference between being a servant of God and a son of God. And actually God had spoken to Israel through the prophet Isaiah about this in the 43rd chapter of Isaiah where he says in verse 10, Lord, the Lord speaking to Israel, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I've chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. Thus the nation of Israel was originated as, as a servant of Yahweh. They were a nation under the law. Their head was Moses, but the head of the church is Jesus Christ. And the New Testament also makes a distinction here between Israel's servitude and the church's sonship. The writer of the Hebrews declares this for us in chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, where he says, Now Moses was faithful in all his, that is the Lord's house, as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, that is the church. If we hold fast our confidence and the boast, that is the rejoicing of our hope firm until the end. So Paul wants the Galatian believers to understand something. A glorious transformation has occurred when you become a believer. And it, when they've placed their faith in the person of Jesus Christ, it, it represents a transition really from servitude to sonship. Major transition. Comments. Okay. Uh, Galatians 3, 27 through 29. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, which is a synonym for Gentile. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, which makes us heirs according to the promise. You know, in those days, in the early church, water baptism wasn't complicated and it wasn't controversial. Uh, it was by immersion, and it always followed conversion, uh, which is the baptism of the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. And these Galatian, these Galatian Christians, they'd have, they would have understood what Paul was teaching uh, regarding bat, being baptized into Christ. As found in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we can read what this baptism is. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, that is the church, whether Jew or Greek, whether slave or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. In verse 27 of Galatians 3 where it states, for, all, 
for all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ, Paul is speaking of an identity change here. By being into Christ, we have essentially put on Christ like a winter coat. And that coat covers us. And we understand that our becoming sons of God by putting on the identity of Christ, this is God's plan, what He has always meant to happen. God's not prejudiced, and He does not tolerate, he doesn't tolerate in His people, but of the vast numbers who've come to Christ, many have been Jews, many other, others have been Gentiles, some slaves, some free, both men and women. But when they're in Christ, they're no longer Jew or Gentile. They are the church, the body of Christ, and the inheritance the inheritance of each one is the same. Being in Christ and members of His body, all believers are Abraham's true descendants and thus heirs according to the promise made to him. Any comments? We're about to get into chapter 4. Okay, chapter 4. As we start chapter 4 here in the early part, Paul is going to make it clear that for those who believe, we are no longer servants, but sons, children of God. So let's start in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. You know, when Paul first brought the gospel to these Galatian people, uh, they were probably adherents of one of the pagan religions that dominated their culture. But when they'd heard the gospel, they responded, many of them did, with faith and repentance. And miraculously, they became heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. Meanwhile, most Jews were faithfully but ineffectually observing the Mosaic law as a means of obtaining righteousness. And if you remember, as Isaiah had just said, the Jews were defined as God's servants. Now, some of the Jews would also one day respond to the gospel and become sons of God. But until such time, they were still designated as God's servants, or better, slaves under law. Now, this verse, verse 1, makes the point that there is a time when there's no evident difference between the child of a slave and the child of the slave's master. That is the son. Maybe one child dresses better than the other, but they're both equal in their childish understanding and in their cultural and social deficiencies. Neither child is automatically endowed with wisdom or knowledge. Both must be instructed in the foundational principles of life. The son or the heir, as long as he is a child, then he differs nothing from the slave or the servant. Now let's keep going because this quickly ties in. Galatians 4.3, So also, while we were children, we were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. And so the we in this verse is referring to believers, but before they come to saving faith. Because God knows the end from the beginning. The Bible clearly states that He foreknew all who would be saved. God's knowledge of us preceded our knowledge of Him. And we and the Galatian believers, we were called by God. But before we knew our heritage, 
believers, just like all people, were under a tutor, meaning the elemental things of the world. Now, for the Jew, that was the law at that time. For the Gentile, that was bondage to the heathen rites and rituals, the false gods, of which there are so many. Any comments? Yes. No, I, Mavis. When I read this, uh, the, the, the ending of verse, uh, chapter 3, yes. Right. Right. That's right. You know, I look. Yes. I love uh, Acts. Uh, in Acts 17, it says we are one blood. When I hear, "What race are you?" or you know, it's like the same race you are. There is one race. You know, we have different pigments. Would I hear something over here? Oh, okay, good. Yes, there's one race, the human race, period. And uh, so God's not prejudiced, and He died for each and every one of us. Nobody is more special or less special. You know, God is great. Yes. It seems like in the Old Testament and under the law, there were a lot of have-tos. You had to be a Jew. You had to be, you had to do these things. You can imagine as a child growing up, Right. Or being a Jew, you know, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this, there's a lot of, lot of have-tos. And with Christ, when we've been set free from sin, there's an awful lot of get-tos. Right. And we, I think we forget that. I think we forget that, that our relationship is based in love, not in law. Absolutely. And so we get to, and I forget that often, and my flesh wants to tell me how I don't get to do things. Right. But there are so many I get. It is easy to fall under bondage as a saved person uh, when we allow that to happen. But when we do, we're, we're just not following the truth of the Scripture. Uh, and it's not a license for sinning. Right. You know, it's... it's a blessing and a privilege to not have to. Absolutely. You know, it's thankfulness for the grace. It's not trotting upon the grace of God. We want to please Him. Okay, uh, Galatians 4, verses uh, 4 and 5. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. There was a day in history uh, called the fullness of the time. It happened. And that was when the promised seed of the woman referred to in Genesis, was born. Let me just quickly look there. This is God speaking to the servant, the serpent, excuse me, after the fall. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the hill. Now Jesus was born as one of us, yet not as one of us at all. Like us, he was born of a woman under the law, like ours, the body in which he came was a corruptible body, but it wouldn't see corruption. It had the likeness of our sinful flesh, but it was not sinful. It was a mortal body as we are, and like ours, it was destined to die. But unlike us, however, 
Jesus was born of a virgin without a human father and without a fallen Adamic nature. He was to be tempted as Adam had been, but he would not fall. Jesus rightly stood. Think about this for a minute. Jesus rightly stood as a man in the image of God, just as was intended from the beginning to show us what was intended. And though he was tested by the law, Jesus filled its requirements. And he was found to be perfect. He thereby qualified to be the redemptive sacrifice for all that did fall in Adam's transgression and who were consequently condemned by the law. Jesus qualified as the redeemer. He gave his life as a ransom for the many. And he instituted our adoption as sons and daughters in the house of God. So Paul refers to those who are under the law as servants or slaves who must be ransomed from their present master before becoming sons of God. Paul writes about then the same subject in Romans 7. This is kind of what you were talking about, Tom, uh, where he compares the law here to an oppressive husband whose captive wife cannot be delivered unless one of them dies. But as we've said before, the believer is identified with Christ in his death and so is released from the law. Listen to Romans 7, verses 1 through 6. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law, so that she's not an adulteress, though she's joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you were also made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in, our, in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. You know, Paul truly wants the Galatians to recognize how diametrically opposed are the bondage of the law and the liberty of grace. The one of them, one on us enslaves uh, us to try to establish our own righteousness while the other one makes us heirs of the righteousness of God by faith. Any comments? Okay, Galatians 4, 6, and 7. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you, know, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This adoption, it, is a, it means that a new relationship has been established. Believers are no longer slaves trying to satisfy their master, the law, through some unattainable level. But now we're sons and daughters who've received the Spirit of God's Son into our heart. It is, you know, the Holy Spirit in, in us, this proves that we've been accepted as members of God's household. And as Charlie said last week, this adoption, is, is, it's into a full-fledged adult with all the rights and the privileges of the Son of God. No longer are we measured by our failure to perform, but by whose child we are. 
The law is no longer our slave master. God is our father. And we are to inherit all that he has for us through Jesus Christ, beginning with his righteousness. Any comments? Okay. We can go. Yes. That's right. The two extremes. Yeah, Licentiousness or legalism. I get to. Mm-hmm. Right. Very good. So how do you stay on the horse? <laughs> Keep your eyes on the on the head. Oh, yeah, and, and Paul, Paul felt the same way. I mean, we're not isolated in that. This Christian walk, you know, it, it's, it's a, we're being kept the whole time through this, and that's, that's because we need to be. Um, not easy. Let me stop here. Uh, yes. Please. Yes. Very good. Very good. Okay. Jeff, I'm going to ask you to close us. Father God, today we thank you for your word, for the truth that is in it. Thank you for your spirit that guides us in the truth. And thank you for Zach and for his, the time that he's put in. 